Welcome cyborgs, androids, automatons, and other robots to a new edition of the George Sanders Show. Today, tying in with the release of Elysium, we are going to be talking about two science fiction films set in distant futures. Michael Anderson's 1976 film Logan's Run, starring Michael York, and Andrew Stanton's 2008 film from Pixar, uh, WALL-E. We'll also be discussing the career of Andrew Stanton today on the show, um, and also listing our Cinema Central picks for best non-Disney, non-Pixar animated films of the 21st century. With me, as always, is Sean Gilman. Hi, Sean. Hello, Mike. <laughs> uh, I say we get this ball rolling, though, with a trip to the carousel in Logan's Run. No. What's wrong? Oh, uh, do you prefer women? No. Nothing. I, I felt sad. I put myself on the circuit. It was a mistake. Sad? What did you feel sad about? A friend of mine went on carousel. Now he's gone. Yes, well, I'm, I'm sure he was renewed. He was killed, like the others. Killed? Why do you, why do you use that word? Isn't that what you do? Kill? I've never killed anyone in my life. Sandman terminate runners. What's your name? Jessica. Well, sad enough. You're beautiful. Let's have sex. Sometime in the 23rd century, the survivors of war, overpopulation, and pollution are living in a great domed city, sealed away from the forgotten world outside. Here, in an ecologically balanced world, mankind lives only for pleasure, freed by the servile mechanisms which provide everything. There's just one catch. <gasps> Life must end at 30 unless reborn in the fiery ritual of the carousel. Dun, 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 dun. That's the prologue for uh, Logan's Run, Michael Anderson's film from 1976, which stars Michael York as a Sandman, somebody who... Uh, he's like the enforcer of the society. They chase down the the people who run when their time is up instead of facing uh, their uh, their demise in a dignified manner. Uh, and... <laughs> dignified manner. <laughs> By wearing hockey masks and leotards and floating in a bubble. It's a it's a it's a dignified ritual. The, uh, that's, the, the way I'm, that's the way I'm gonna go. He uh, he is sent by the uh, the computer that over that rules the city to find out uh, where the people are running to this place called Sanctuary, and he enlists uh, Jenny Agutter, who's a a pretty young woman, to help him find his way out of the city. The movie is was released in 1976, which is a year before Star Wars, and it's it's kind of the last time a movie like this could be taken as a sci-fi epic because Star Wars really kind of changed the the equation of what audiences expected from a sci-fi movie. We both post-date Star Wars. We are we're <laughs> we're in the in-between stage where we are we're too old to have lived um in the Logan's Run world, we would have been killed years ago. Right. But we're not old enough that Logan's Run seems natural to us. It seems kind of phony and cheesy. Did that ruin the experience for you? I think it did. Uh, I don't want to spend the whole time comparing this to Star Wars, but the fact that 
Star Wars does everything that everything better than this movie does. Uh, particularly for me, the world of Star Wars, um, the the sets and all that, they feel lived in. They feel real. They're kind of grimy in some things, but then also, you know, on the Death Star and stuff, they do. They are shiny and clean, and, but they do feel, you know, more than just sets. And and Logan's Run feels really. Slapdash, and I mean, it looks like a shopping mall. Uh, most of the most of the sets and stuff. Well, it, it it was a shopping. mall. Well, I know, but you can film in a shopping mall and dress it up in a way that it doesn't just automatically think that make you think there's a Cinnabon around the corner. You know, um, I did notice a, an exit sign. Near, yeah, near I did. I saw that too. Yeah, I did see that too. Um, <laughs> exit signs made it. You know, three hundred years in the future. Um, you know, there are certain things. That Logan's Run, I do enjoy. Um, I did enjoy the actual the sets um, in the last part of the picture when they've escaped and they they're in this uh, they're in Washington D.C. and it's overgrown with ivy and stuff like that. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. Too. I thought that was a really that was really cool. Um, and I can appreciate the exterior or the shots of the dome city um, that are models that you see in the opening credits and stuff. Um, and despite the fact that it automatically made me think of Epcot, um, and in particular Disney's original conception of Epcot, which was uh, an experimental prototype community of tomorrow, which could be the world of Logan's Run. But anyway, bringing it back to the film itself, I, yeah, it, it feels like a relic. And I, I tried to separate my viewing experience from having seen things like Star Wars and all that stuff, but... I still don't think Logan's Run is that is that good of a picture. It, it feels like the 1970s, and not just because you know the special effects seem seem dated and and phony. Although they were you know state of the art at the time, it won it won an Oscar for best visual effects. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like the 1970s, not just because of, of the the clothes and the sets and and the effects, but just... and Farrah Fawcett's feathered hair. Yeah, that's difficult to say. Huh? Yeah, it Fair, is. Farrah Fawcett's, Fawcett's feathered, feathered hair, hair. <laughs> uh, which somehow made the you know the transition to uh, the twenty third century. None of that's a, a problem for me because I see the film as not being about the future. It's not about three hundred years in the future. It's it's very much about the specific moment that it was made. It's about the nineteen seventies. Oh, absolutely, and, and, and about the nineteen sixties. So you know, it's appropriate to me that there's feathered hair and and just weird kind of conception of free love and. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, it, it all seems part of a, a cohesive whole to me. Whereas, you know, something like Star Wars isn't isn't about any particular time or place. It's it's more in the in the epic mode. It's a, it's an ahistorical kind of film. Uh, Logan's Run feels more to me like uh, you know something like All the President's Men, which also came out in nineteen seventy six, or, or Network. Like it, yeah. it's it's that kind of a movie. Yeah, it is kind of like a network. <laughs> so far that it, it's not very good. Um, yeah, no, totally, I agree with you. I mean, the movie, you know, the movie's about, you know, youth uh, deciding to settle down and, you know, uh, you know Michael York and... Um, Jenny Agater. Jenny, Jenny Agater, uh, who is a very pretty woman. You're, you're right on that front. Yes, uh, Jenny Agater is, uh, is quite fetching. Yeah, she, yeah, she was fun to watch. Um, so yeah, it's totally, it totally is about that time and place. Um, and I, I believe the book that it's based on, I mean, came out not too. Yeah. Long, uh, I think the IMDb said it came out like nine years before. Yeah, so, so it, you know, it's very much 
of this kind of generation and, and this mentality. So, you know, in that sense, the, the temporal specificity of the film, I don't really see as a drawback. What, in, the, in the same way that, you know, I, I, I watch a movie set in the Depression and it tells me of what life was like in the Depression. I think we're just a little too close to the 1970s that it, it seems corny to us. The corniness I could actually get behind in certain sections of the film. Uh, you know, I do like seeing the the um, free love ideals, you know, when he orders uh, basically a hooker uh, through his TV and, <laughs> you know, someone appears. At first it's a man and it's like, hey, you want to get together? I, lo- like, I love the, the look on Michael York's face. It just kind of shrugs. Nah. I love the look on not, the... Not this time. Yeah. I like the look on the male prostitute's face where he's just like, hey. hey. And then he's like, okay, I'll go sleep with somebody else. Um, you know, and that whole thing kind of culminates in what I think is the best scene in the movie is that slow motion chase through the neon orgy room, which, uh, yeah, which you're, is kind you're of not going to get in Star Wars. It, it's the last glimpse we see of the city before they escape to to the outside world is is they run through this, like, tunnel filled with pink smoke that turns everything slow motion (laughs) and so they're like you know they're stuck in this in this room where all of these naked people are pawing at them and but they're only moving like they're you know underwater yeah and eventually you know they make their escape their escape out through a, a, a door with a neon vagina on it yeah the giant pink neon vagina um and and that scene to me was fantastic i thought it was great and um, if there was more of that in the movie, I think I would have enjoyed it more. But I think, you know, taking it out of its, you know, time period and stuff like that, I don't think as a whole, I don't think the movie works. Um, it really, to me, particularly falls flat in that final third when they do escape and they're kind of making their trek to Washington, D.C. And despite the fact that I liked the setting of that better than I liked the setting inside the, um, you know, enclosed uh, utopia, it really got bogged down, especially when they run into old man Peter Ustinov. Yeah, Peter Ustinov, who is living in um, the Capitol, Capitol building. Yeah, the Capitol building with a bunch of cats, uh, and that scene just goes on and on and on and on, and and it does one of uh, the things I hate the most in futuristic sci-fi kind of movies, where the characters who ostensibly live in a world different from the one that the viewers are living in, um, ask all these questions about life that the viewers already know about, like what's a cat and what's a beloved wife and beloved husband. And, you know, it's to show that they're different from us, but it just keeps happening and it's just tedious and you're like, oh, I know what a cat is. you know. <laughs> and, and anyway, that whole section to me just completely sends the movie in a, in a nosedive and it doesn't really recover from it. Um, and Peter Ustinov, I thought it was pretty funny. He's he's funny, but as a separate entity, like not in this movie. Like I, it just didn't work for me. It rubbed me the wrong. Yeah, way. he's he's definitely giving a very different kind of performance than than York and and Agatha are. Yes. Um, well, at least he didn't get naked. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like. Uh, there's a weird kind of darkness in the movie, and I really and I really like that, both in in Michael York's character and in what they find when they leave the city. Like York is is he's basically a spy. He's undercover, and he's lying to Agatha the entire time when he's trying to convince her that he really does want to escape. And that's you know consistent in his character 
all the way until they make it outside of the city and they realize that there's no actual sanctuary and that there's no people left. Up until then, he's the villain of the movie through the first two-thirds of, of the running time. And, you know, I thought that was really interesting. Like, when they, when they actually find all of the, like, underground people, he's the one who calls in the other, uh, the other agents and kills them all. See, I feel like he becomes the good guy right after that. Not when, not once they've actually left the entire civilization, or, um, but once his buddies in the Sandmen show up and start killing everybody, that to, that's when he is like, oh, wait, I'm on board now with this whole sanctuary business. These guys are, you know, bad news. Yeah. You know. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of splitting hairs. But um, no, it is interesting, and I kept waiting for his secret and how he's using Jessica um, to come out, and it never really does. I mean, no, she never she does. believes, yeah, she believes him the whole way. Um, I mean, she does see at the end when he's being interrogated, and and it is is known that he was sent to look for sanctuary. Yeah, but by, by that point, it's it's it's, it's a, too it's late. It's a moot point, but still. Um, and then once they once they get outside the city, when they find the the sanctuary. And it turns out there's this mad robot that every single person that has escaped from the city has been frozen in the robot's walls. Yes. That is dark. That's 1,056 people who think <laughs> that they have found freedom with more leaving every day only to get encased in ice by a crazy robot. Yes. Uh, I actually, I did, that part was pretty cool. Um, I mean, the robot itself, that's another, you know, not to compare it again to Star Wars, but Oh, it's very much of the of the uh, the box and and dryer vent variety. I mean, you can lot. see his you can see the actor's lips and teeth underneath the uh, you know silver you know mask or whatever. I think that's intentional. I think he's like a, a robot human hybrid. Well, it was pretty distracting still, but uh, well, yeah. but no, I did I did enjoy that you know this the sanctuary turns out to be a sham, um, and and yeah, and then there are all these naked people encased <laughs> in. <laughs> And I love how they're posing in there too. I mean, they look like they're just you know um, models in a window display or whatever. But uh, yeah, that that scene was pretty interesting. Um, and, and you know, and it's preceded by the great scene. They they both uh, as uh, Michael York and and, and Jenny Agutter escape. They have to go through uh, water, so they're all wet. But they end up in this frozen area, so they're freezing. And they see like some fur blankets on the ground, and they're like, "Let's use these free blank our fur blankets to warm ourselves." And, uh, and she's, and she says, uh, uh, yeah, but let's take our clothes off first. He, so you he see, actually uh, says that. He says, <laughs> let's take our doubt. clothes off first. <laughs> so they both strip off their clothes and hey, naked, uh, Jenny Agutter. Yeah. Suddenly they're naked. And then less than a minute and a half later, uh, they put those wet clothes back on and. Well, because they have going. to make their escape. Well, I know, but still, uh, yeah, it, <laughs> Yeah, there is definitely some gratuitous nudity in here for no reason whatsoever, besides the fact that it was 1976. Um, well, you know, I've I've seen I've seen Jenny Agutter in in two movies from the 70s, in this and in uh, uh, Walkabout, Nicholas mm-hmm. Regg's movie set in Australia, which is a, a really great movie. Um, in a very different movie from Logan's Run, but it, it's a terrific film. And anyway, in both movies, she swims naked. Ah. So I don't know if that was just kind of her thing in the 1970s. Is like we have a role where the the main character swims naked. Let's mm-hmm. get Jenny Agutter. Yeah, it's like in the 90s, like getting Janine Garofalo to play like the snarky sidekick or whatever. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Was, she she, she was, swims naked. Yeah, Jenny Agutter. 
was her or it was her niche. Yeah, who else? Who else are you gonna get? Um, yeah, and I think I think the leads do a, a, a tolerable job. I don't think they really do anything amazing, um, and also, but I also don't think that they you know slow slow it down or ruin it at all. Um, but the casting of Farrah Fawcett in a very small minor role, she's just atrocious. Yeah, she's not. Her hair is great, though. Her hair is, is, is pretty amazing, but she is just god-awful. Um, she has this scene, her, she's only in two scenes, and she has this scene where she arrives at the entrance to Sanctuary, and um, she's accusing Michael York of you know, being Sandman and how he you know, was responsible for the death of uh, this surgeon. Yeah, the plastic uh, surgeon. Plastic surgeon. Um, and she has this tearful, you know tirade or what have you um that is laughably bad yeah and and unfortunately it's kind of a pivotal moment in the film uh you know it it comes when he you know like i said he decides to you know join the sanctuary thing and and his friends are about to attack and stuff and it's just she's got her mascara streaming down her face and she's it's well she's in shock she's just seen the doctor (laughs) cut up by his own lasers don't try and justify it it was not good. Yeah, that that that's uh, that is a poor scene. Yeah, but Michael York, I I really like. Like, uh, you know, I've seen him in you know the Austin Powers movies, and uh, he's in Cabaret, which which is a great film. And just a couple months ago, I watched the uh, the um, Richard Lester Musketeers movies, Three Musketeers and Four Musketeers, in which uh, Michael York plays D'Artagnan, and. I can see why he was so popular in the 1970s. He's he's really charming and and fun and I love the Lester Musketeer movies. I haven't seen them uh, in 20 years, but I I loved him as a kid and and he was one of the reasons. I mean, he's really really good. And don't forget he also opened a restaurant with Ted Danson and Larry David uh, in season 3 of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Well, yeah. <laughs> and uh Richard Jordan was one of my favorite character actors of the 1980s. Like he's in uh he plays the the villain here. He's he's Michael York's best friend who is tracking him down because he thinks he's betrayed the city when he's right. actually a spy. Right. Uh, Richard Jordan is in uh, Hunt for Red October. He's in The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox. I always like seeing Richard Jordan in the movie. He died uh, tragically too young. Mm, that's a shame. No, he's he's good. He he plays it well. Um, he's also a better shot than. Uh, Michael Yorkers, there's that scene in the beginning of the film where, I mean, these are supposed to be elite, you know, enforcers. Well, I think that that gets to kind of some part of the darkness in Michael York's character because in that opening scene, they're chasing they're chasing a runner and they're basically just toying with him, like they're shooting all over all around him and laughing, and they're really kind of just psychotic. Yeah, it's 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 definitely uh, you know mean-spirited at the way that they're tracking this guy down. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily intentional because, you know, he's his friend needs to cover for him later since he, he botched the, you know, uh, attack or whatever. I mean, they think they're supposed to just, you know, shoot him and, and there he was, you know, and he failed at that or whatever, and that kind of leads to some of the trouble down the line or what have you. But um, what did you think of the musical score here? I really liked it. Did you? Yeah. Oh, I couldn't stand it. Really? I really couldn't stand it. It was one of the... The the music score... The the thing that's interesting about it is that, intentionally so, in the scenes in the futuristic society, there's a lot of electronics used. Right, and then once they get outside the city, it's it's an orchestra. It's an orchestra. Um, And both sides of that whole are, are, to me, were just 
very distracting. They were really loud in the mix, and um, it's one of those things where they say, "Oh, it's the future. We need tinkling." Doo -doo 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 -doo. But it doesn't. It doesn't go anywhere. It's terrible well, it's, stuff. Uh, it's Jerry Goldsmith, and and he's uh, one of the better film composers of the the sixties and seventies. He did you know Planet of the Apes and Star Trek. Um, well, I thought the music here was bombastic. Um, in the worst sense. Um, I thought it, it had a nice kind of modernist, atonal vibe to it. I, I felt like it was trying for that, and it just, you know, it didn't cut the mustard. <laughs> 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 says, says the old man here. <laughs> what I did like about this movie, you know, sometimes, you know, I, thinking of the life after the picture, you know, what happens after the credits roll, I like the thought that this society of impressionable 20-somethings are now going to kind of deify a crazy old cat person <laughs> um, and raise him up uh, and kind of, you know, use him as, as this barometer of, uh, you know, idealism. <laughs> yeah, I like that they all end up in, in like an ivy-colored Washington, D.C. Uh, the city that they, that they come from has all these uh, vaginal motifs, like we mentioned with the... Uh, the, the the room escape. Oh, we're getting Freudian now. And right? then they get to, to Washington, and, and, and what do they see? The, the Washington, Washington Monument. Monument. Yeah, <laughs> a big old penis. Yeah. Um, but just kind of the, uh, the, the whole generational argument of it is that, is that these kids, they're all under 30, and they, but they're rediscovering all the things that they've lost, you know, marriage and government. So all of the things that the older generation is criticizing the younger for having rejected. The movie, you know, says that the the movie is very anti-youth culture. Uh, absolutely. And so when the kids come out, they basically recreate the United States government of the 1950s. Right. Well, and also, I mean, the movie's 1976, and that was the bicentennial, you know, so they're kind of, you know, it kind of ties in, it, and that was in the culture at the time, was, you know, I mean, that was a big deal in 1976. Um and there was a lot of patriotism going around and what have you. And yeah, it, it shows these wild and crazy kids suddenly deciding, oh, I want to pair off with you and have a kid. And maybe we will create some form of society. And, yes, we, yeah. will, we will recreate Eisenhower's America. <laughs> exactly. Um, which is silly, and, you know, but, you know. Well, have you seen any of the other uh, 70s, you know, the films in this kind of lineage, like um, The Omega Man and, or any of those other? I really haven't. So, you know, 70s sci-fi pre-Star Wars is just not something I, I'm all that familiar with. I, I was too young to see it at the time because I wasn't born until late in the decade. I know 80s sci-fi really well, but yeah. but the 70s stuff... That's a whole different breed. Always, you know, Star Wars changed things so much that, that anything before that just looked awkward. My mom would try and, and get me to watch Logan's Run. Yeah. And I would say, that looks terrible. <laughs> well, did, so seeing this, does this make you a little more interested in seeing some of those 70s films? Yeah, I'm not, you know, now that I'm I'm older and, and not as uh, as prejudiced as I was when I was 12, I uh, am certainly willing to watch, you know, like Silent Running or uh, Omega Man. I've seen Planet of the Apes. That's a good movie. Yeah. Well, I guess I, I remain a little more prejudiced. I mean, I'm not, I, I would, I would, I would not avoid those movies, uh, um, but this film in particular did not 
spark any interest in going down that line because ultimately I, I don't think this is a success. I think there are good things about it, but on the whole, I think it, the movie doesn't quite succeed. Yeah, I thought it was a lot of fun. Oh, well, you like neon vaginas more than I do. <laughs> Can't argue with that. Uh, on that note, we're speaking of neon. Speaking of neon, we are going to uh, listen to a little bit of craft work today, uh, tying in with our robots theme and our futuristic sounds. Um, this is the song Neon Lights from the album The Man Machine. That was Neon Lights from Kraftwerk. Is it Kraftwerk? I think it actually is. I have a German girlfriend, so I think she would say Kraftwerk. Um, I, little, little known trivia here. I used to be in an uh, all-acoustic guitar Kraftwerk uh, cover band. Uh, you know what we were called? No. Fretwork. <laughs> That's very clever. It was super fun. It was, it was, I mean, it was a really, it was a, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, um, yes. Well, let's get to the news of the okay. week. And uh, speaking of, of really geeky things, uh, Doctor Who announced who's going to be the, uh, the was this the 13th Doctor? This yeah. is the 12th Doctor. The 12th Doctor. Come on, Sean. It's, uh, Unless, well, I mean, now speaking of getting geeky, you know, John Hurt will be playing the Doctor in the 50th anniversary episode. So technically he is... A doctor in that line, so technically this could be the thirteenth doctor. But yeah, for all intents and purposes, it's the twelfth doctor. Okay. <laughs> and it's uh, Peter Capaldi from uh, most famous to American audiences uh, from the movie In the Loop, which is a, a version of the TV series The Thick of It, which in which he plays a a, a very foul mouthed uh, political operative in the British government. What do you think of the casting of Peter Capaldi? Having not seen any of his work except for he was in an episode of Doctor Who, he was in the Fires of Pompeii episode, um, just going based on who he is um, and the little that I do know about him, I'm very excited. Um, there was a lot of clamor for Stephen Moffat and the other uh, creators of the show to 
pick a woman or pick someone of color. Um, yeah, Idris Elba was a, a popular choice. Uh, who was who is your ideal casting as Doctor Who? If you could cast anyone working today, anyone working today? Oh my gosh, that's I, I don't even know if I can answer that question. I, I have the correct answer. Oh, what's the correct answer? Uh, and it's kind of cheating because it's the correct answer for pretty much every casting question. Amy Acker. <laughs> Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton would be a great doctor. She really would. Um, yeah, that would be a great choice. But to me, all of that hoopla about, you know, getting a woman or getting someone, you know, of color um, as a doctor, that would be fine. I'm not opposed to it. But I'm also not one of those people that just has this knee-jerk reaction to the fact that they picked another white British guy. Um, and be angry about that. I think skewing older with Capaldi is great because um, while I love Matt Smith and David Tennant, um, I really like I like the dynamics of older doctors like Sylvester McCoy um, with Ace, uh, the Seventh Doctor, and and you know going back even to the first, you know William Hartnell who was ancient <laughs> and, and and well he's the same age that peter capaldi was uh, yeah but it, have you ever seen a first doctor serial well, he looks 19 uh, 55 years old 50 years ago looked a lot different than 55 years old does now he uh yeah i mean the reason that he got replaced the whole reason regeneration came up was that he couldn't remember his lines and they had to swap out and, you know the show was so popular they couldn't cancel it but they couldn't keep working with him so that's why they right. moved on um but I think it's really great for the show because I think it, you know, it'll it'll steer the stories away from the whole potential romance that was there with you know Tennant. Yeah, that's Rose. that's really kind of dragged down the the uh, the new Who years for me is 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 this uh, romantic uh, angle to it. Yeah, yeah, of the relationship with the Doctor and his companions. That's why you know my favorite of the new companions was Catherine Tate because she was yeah. she was you know there was no question of uh, a relationship between her and David Tennant. Well, and also they I were th- more peers. Yeah. Than- well, I think her season also was just stronger on the whole the stories and everything. Um, and her story arc is the saddest thing yeah. in the new Who. I mean, it's just it's just incredible. But. So yeah, I'm very excited to see where they're going to go with this, and I think the dynamic between him and Clara will be really, really interesting. Um, and also, from what I know about him, is he's he plays more cool and kind of detached characters. Um, and while I love the charm of you know David Tennant and you know and Matt Smith, um, it'll be nice to have going back more to like an Eccleston. Um, yeah, I actually really like Christopher Eggleston as I like him just in general, but I liked his doctor quite a bit. I grew to like his doctor. I didn't like him. He actually was what turned me off from the doctor initially. I watched uh, the first episode with him and I he kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I think he played the the darkness in the in the doctor a lot better than than David Tennant or Matt Smith do. You know, Tennant and Smith just tend to, you know, get really loud. Yeah, they get loud and, and they're just wacky and um, and that's not to say anything bad. I think Matt Smith has done a wonderful job, um, and David Tennant has a special place in my heart. I really do love me some David Tennant. But I do, like going back to what I was saying, um, of the classic who, you know, I love the snarkiness of someone uh, like Sylvester McCoy um, and Tom Baker, who, even though he's the most charming of any doctor, I mean, Tom Baker can carry any mediocre episode of Doctor Who because he's so fantastic. But he does have this snide you know, dismissive quality to him that I just love. And I, and I hope that that comes uh, to the forefront here with uh, Capaldi. I agree. <laughs> uh, you can also find Peter Capaldi in uh, Dangerous Liaisons. He plays uh, John Malkovich's valet. Oh, does he? Yes. Well, 
Maybe I, you know, yeah. a small but pivotal role in, in seducing Michelle Pfeiffer's maid. Hmm. I, yeah, I'm tempted to. I, I mean, would, Michelle Pfeiffer. Somebody's maid. He seduces. I'm kind of. I'm tempted to seek out some of those things that he's done, like the thick of it. Um, but I also kind of want to go in cold to his, you know, version of the Doctor. I don't want to bring too much baggage with him. That's why someone like Idris Elba was an interesting idea. But it's like Stringer Bell. Like it. it you know, I kind of like the doctor. Well, being... he's a, he's an actor. He's not going to play Stringer Bell. I know he's doctor. not, but I but I'm saying like all the doctors before this, I don't know from anything but Doctor Who prior to seeing them in that. And you know, David Tennant's done things after Doctor Who, and that's fine. That's great. Matt Smith's going to have a career. He's doing something with Ryan Gosling. That's great. But hey, I kind of like I know, uh, but I like going cold into my doctors. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, although that being said when that teaser came up at the end of the final episode of this past season and it said, and introducing John Hurt as the Doctor, I was like, oh, snap, this is going to be awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I really love Doctor Who. All right, so that, that, that's enough about TV for this uh, movie-related podcast. It's our podcast. We can talk about Doctor Who if we want. Damn straight. Uh, what else is going on in the news? Uh, Harvey Weinstein is at it again. Oh, yeah, we talked about this, what, two weeks on the show? Three weeks on the show? Yeah, on the uh, the Duel of Fists episode, yeah, the Tears of the Black Tiger. Yeah, we were talking about, you know, not just Weinstein, but predominantly Weinstein taking foreign films uh, from particularly Asian markets and sitting on them, cutting them to hell, and then releasing them a couple years down the line. And it looks like he's doing it again with Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer. Um, Speaking which, of Tilda Swinton. Speaking of Tilda Swinton, and that's part of the reason why it, doing it for this is is seemingly even more kind of confounding. It's Bong Joon Ho's first uh, it's English English language. language. Uh, it's a sci fi film set on a train, and and from what I understand, has a pretty simple plot. Yeah, and and it stars recognizable actors who will get people to go to the theater. You know, I think Chris Evans is in it, yeah. um, along with Tilda Swinton and stuff. And the fact that uh, Weinstein, Bong Joon-ho has said that Weinstein wants to cut 20 minutes out of this thing. Yeah, T- Tony Raines, who's, uh, who is, is brilliant, is one of my favorite critics. He's a, a programmer for the, uh, the Asian films at the Vancouver International Film Festival, among, among other great work that he does, has been uh, reporting Harvey's interference in, in Bong's cut of the movie and lamenting it. It's, it's horrible. Because yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't say I'm a huge... Bong Joon-ho fan. Um, I, He's I've, the director of The Host. And Mother. And Mother. Um, and I really like um, his work. And I, I was looking forward to this. You know, I, I think there are better Korean directors out there. Um, I haven't seen... Have you seen any other... Uh, like Stoker? Uh, any of the other... No, I, yeah, I've seen Old language? Boy. I didn't really care for it. I haven't seen oh, Stoker. Oh, really? You didn't like Old Boy? No. I mean, I, I'm not like in the cult of Old Boy, but I think Old Boy's really good. Um, uh, as far as Korean cinema goes, I'm pretty much all Hong Sang Soo all the time. Uh, I'm I'm Lee Chang Dong uh, is my favorite Korean director. Um, he did Secret Sunshine and Poetry and Poetry. I preferred to Mother. Poetry, I prefer to Mother, but Secret Sunshine, I prefer to everything. <laughs> it's an amazing movie. But anyway, we're we're going on a tangent here. And well, and Weinstein is also cutting uh, the Grandmaster. Right, and we're we're actually going to talk about the Grandmaster in a couple weeks on the show. Um, 
but we're going to talk about the the international cut of the film, not the one that's getting released in theaters in the U.S. because we're boycotting uh, it. Harvey's Harvey's cut twelve minutes out of the movie, at least twelve minutes out, and supposedly has added different footage Ugh. to it. And it's uh, it's one hundred and thirty minutes long, and it's. Uh, in its international release and 108 minutes for its U.S. release. It's it's just terrible. So and that's uh, you know that's one Kar Wai's uh, kung fu movie with Tony Leung and, and Jang Ziyi, and you know not even one Kar Wai can can escape Harvey Scissorhands. Yeah, it's it's egregious on all accounts, and and it drives you away from seeing the movie. Like I I would gladly have gone out and paid you know my ten eleven dollars to see Snowpiercer. Or, you know, Grandmaster. Grandmaster well, was one of my top film anticipated films for this year. And now I'm going to be watching a pirated version. <laughs> um, well, it's not, it's not, it's a, it's the international Blu-ray cut of the movie. Sure. And it's out there. Um, you know, this is, this is why Harvey does it is, is he's quoted as saying that he wants uh, Snowpiercer to be comprehensible to people in Iowa and Oklahoma, which is a saying that those people are idiots and they can't handle, you know, an extra 10 minutes of movie. And B, it means that the people who are actually going to go see the movie will not because it's it. not going to play. It may play in like one theater in Des Moines, but it's not going to play all over Iowa. It is going to play in New York and Seattle and San Francisco, but the people who really care about these kinds of things aren't going to go see it there. They're just going to to wait for the international cut to be, you know, a available illegally or rented from a really cool video store like Scarecrow. Yeah. And and it it's just a boneheaded decision that I just I truly cannot comprehend. Yeah. He needs to be stopped. Someone needs to stop him. Yeah. Speaking of things that need to stop, uh <laughs> last bit of news I have is uh uh somebody named Uncas Blythe wrote a thing on uh Mubi about vulgar tourism. And it's uh, it's pretty much insufferable, and I don't really want to talk about it. Uh, <laughs> I wrote a lot about the subject earlier earlier this year, and I'll link to that in the in the post for this show. My thoughts on autourism and vulgar autourism in general, and you can just read that. It's a lot easier to read than than Mr. Blides. I haven't read it, but uh, screw that guy. All right. Uh, <laughs> uh, next up, we're going to talk about um, what we do every week on the show, um, our Cinema Central picks for something that kind of ties in with the theme of the show. And today, um, since we're talking about WALL-E, uh, an animated feature from this century, we're going to pick our Cinema Central film that was not created by Disney or Pixar, um, animated feature of the 21st century. Which, you know, <laughs> as kind of a, you know, it's not a narrow uh, thing, but, you know, we're definitely winnowing it down have 13 and a half years to whip the shoes from. That's, sure. And that's plenty of time. Yeah, it's just... It's a it, golden age of animation. It is a golden age of animation. So, did you pick Kung Fu Panda or Kung Fu Panda 2? <laughs> I picked Shrek Forever After. Ooh. Uh, no, I picked, uh, I picked probably what the most obvious pick is. Uh, I picked Hayao Miyazaki's Spirited Away, mm-hmm. uh, which is... Not my... You know, that was distributed by Disney. Josh, <laughs> It's a Studio Ghibli film. It wasn't cut like Harvey Weinstein does. Uh, but he did cut Princess Mononoke. He did. He's a jerk. Um, and that, But that movie was 97, so that doesn't count anyway. But um, Spirited Away, 
for those who haven't seen it, and I can't believe anybody who hasn't seen that movie by this point, um, it's the story of a girl who's moving to a new town, and on her way there, she, uh, they, she and her family stop off at this little road stop area, and uh, her parents turn into pigs, and she ends up working at a bathhouse for spirits, and it's just a gorgeous movie. I I don't even know if I can articulate why I love that movie so much, but Miyazaki is just on a different wavelength from anybody else, and it it's it's like a, it's like a twenty first century version of Alice in Wonderland, um, and I don't mean that in like a derivative sort of way. I don't mean that it it rips off Alice in Wonderland, but she goes into this magical world that feels dreamlike, but it feels um, right. It feels you know it doesn't feel like it's weird just to be weird. Like all the choices that Miyazaki makes, where you know there's a character with a giant head. Um, there's a character named No Face who just consumes vast quantities of everything around it, um, and there, there's just it's just a gorgeous, somber film um, that's just beautiful. And I, I got to see it uh, recently at um, SIF. Ran the Miyazaki. It wasn't just Miyazaki. It was all. It was a lot of Ghibli stuff that um, you and I saw. Porco Rosso there. Mm-hmm. Um, I also saw Palm Poco. Yes, awesome. I, I still haven't seen Pompoko. I really need to see that. It's one of the few Ghibli things I haven't seen. Um, but I did get to see Spirit Away on the big screen there, and it was, you know, it's, it's just a, it, it's a masterpiece that uh, will stand the test of time. People will be talking about the movie a hundred years from now. Yeah, Spirit Spirit Away. I have two things to say about that. A, Spirit Away is a great movie, and B, people need to stop watching the Disney dubs of me. Oh, yes. And yes, uh, the only, no, actually, it's not true. Well, I think we talked about this previously on the show, but um, I've only seen two of the English language versions. Um, one was uh, Porco Rosso. The first time I saw it, uh, I saw the English version with Michael Keaton. For some reason, I don't know why. Um, it's pretty bad, but the Princess Mononoke one, the Miramax one with Claire Danes and Billy Bob Thornton is terrible. So I hope people are not subtitle-averse. Um, please see the films in their original language. The, the, only, the only excuse you have to watch a Miyazaki movie dubbed is if you're watching it with a six-year-old kid. Yeah. Oh! And they don't read that fast. I did see Ponyo in the theater, and it was in English, um, which is a shame because for a while, Disney, I think, at the behest of John Lasseter, was forcing them to release both versions of the film into theater. That's how that's how we played it. Yeah, Howl's Moving Castle came out um, in both English and Japanese. Um, but I think Ponyo was just English in the States. Um, no, initially. I think we played them both. Did we? Then why did I see it in English? I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, either way. Because um, you suck. It's, that's what it is. Basically, <laughs> I suck. Um, Sean, uh, I'm now going to throw the question over to you. Even though when we discussed this last week, I knew your answer before you even finished yeah, it's a it's a an obvious pick for me because it's a movie I've I've been advocating for for the last five years, and it was the uh, the most recent of all of the the movies we played at Metro Classics. It's the only <laughs> movie post two thousand other than the New World that we played, and it's sure. uh, it's Nina Paley's See the Sings the Blues, which is kind of hard to describe. It's uh, basically tells three different stories. One is set in the present. And it's kind of a semi-autobiographical story about about Nina Paley, whose husband 
goes gets a job in India and they have like a long distance relationship and end up getting divorced. While she's kind of coping with this trauma, she reads the Ramayana, the story of, of Sita and her husband Rama and their separation and reuniting and then separation again. And she's and uh, in reading the story, she starts to kind of cope with her own real life trauma. And then and both of those are animated in, in very different styles. Added to the uh, the story of Sita and Rama are these recordings of, of kind of jazzy blues songs from the 1920s um, done by Annette Hanshaw. Uh, so there'll be like little musical interludes where she'll sing like Am I Blue or something like that. And then the third layer of the story has shadow puppets of Indian people trying to remember the story of Rama and Sita, but they're all from different parts of India. And the the story varies by which where you grew up and where you heard the story because India is a vast subcontinent. And so their versions are always different and little details are different and even the names are sometimes different. So they're always arguing about what actually the story is. So you get these these three layers of, of the narrative and three wildly different animation styles mixed in with these songs from the 20s. And it all ends up just being this really funny, really kind of, you know, glorious celebration of the ways we use art to cope with personal trauma. Yes, uh, and I, I wholeheartedly endorse that film. I think See the Sings the Blues is um, incredible. It's a it's a gorgeous thing to watch. It was great that we did get to play that at Metro Classics. Um, see it on the big screen there, and I've definitely steered a lot of people in the direction of that film. Um, and I've no one's come away disappointed from See the Sings the Blues. Um, to me, um, you know, it does have a soft spot for me um, because I am such a huge fan of that '30s kind of pop song um, that Annette Hanshaw um, masters and. Anyone that knows me uh, even a little bit knows that one of my favorite films ever is Pennies from Heaven, which uh, also sure. does the same thing um, by using recordings from the 30s um, to... Pennies from Heaven, a much darker film. <laughs> much darker than Cena Sings the Blues. Yeah. Pennies from Heaven is... Uh, it has far fewer monkeys. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but it's got uh, Bernadette Peters, and that's all I need. Um, uh, but yeah, Cena Sings the Blues, it's, it's a singular experience, and it's gorgeous, and um, I look forward to seeing what Nina Paley does uh, down the line. I know she's been working on something. She, she has. She has some, some other like shorts and stuff on her, on her website. I don't know that she's done an actual feature yet. There was a, there was a, Cedar Sings Blues had a long, um, a long road to actually getting distributed because, because she was just basically making this movie in flash on her own computer. Uh, she didn't get the rights to the Annette Hanshaw songs, which were owned by Sony, and Sony was charging like a ridiculous amount of money, so she couldn't get theatrical distri- distribution. Uh, she just got it to, uh, she could play it at film festivals, and she got uh, like a Creative Commons license and was able to, to press like a thousand DVDs of it or something and sent them out, and, and Roger Ebert got one of them and, and looked at it and, and raved about the movie and that kind of got the ball rolling to where it actually started playing on PBS and to where I think you can actually um you can watch it on Fandor I know the the streaming service I'm I'm not sure where else it's available now yeah but it's it's much more out there than it was in 2008 when we played at Metro Classics I think it it coincidentally played at uh, University of Washington like a week before or something and so yeah. it does get around uh, which yeah. is great I mean the more people talk about that movie the better because it's it's definitely a film that needs to be seen and is uh, just as inventive and interesting as you know the 
actually, it's more, I should say, it's more inventive and interesting than, uh, you know, the wide release animated films that come down the pipeline. On, on my website, I have, I have a lot of lists. I have lists <laughs> for uh, pretty much every movie I can remember organized by year. And so I have like a, a best movie for every year going back to, to 1900. And throughout all the years, there was never a movie, an animated movie that made number one on my year by year list until 2008. And in 2008, uh, my top two are both animated films. And I kind of go back and forth on which is the number one, which is the number two. Uh, but it's Cedar Sings the Blues and, and Wally. Oh, what a coincidence! Uh, well, well, we'll use that as our <laughs> transition into our discussion of the director of the latter picture, Wally, um, which we'll be discussing later in the show today. You uh, just kill my segues. <laughs> Andrew Stanton uh, is the director of Wally, um, and he is. You know, one of the names that's pretty much synonymous with Pixar, he um, famously is the second animator hired by the studio. He was the ninth employee overall. Um, Pixar was originally a computer software company um, that was owned by Lucasfilm um, and then was spun out. And, and to show the, the powers of the technology, they started to make animated films. And John Lasseter was at the helm of, of all, most of the shorts. And Andrew Stanton was his second in command. And... Uh, Andrew Stanton was integral in all of the um, initial Pixar hits. He He's kind of known as the writer there. He wrote uh, both the first two Toy Stories, or had a writing credit on both the first two Toy Stories, um, and Monsters, Inc., uh, and A Bug's Life. And then he uh, made his feature film debut as a director on Finding Nemo, which was, at the time, Michael Eisner, who was still running Disney, and was kind of at war with Pixar over, you know, terms of their distribution contract and stuff. And he, he thought that he was going to have some leverage once Finding Nemo came out because he, he saw a cut of the film and thought it was going to be Pixar's first flop. Uh, turns out he was totally wrong. It was Pixar's biggest hit. Uh, it, it made like $800 million. It's probably still their most I think beloved it might be. movie. Yeah, it just blew everything out of the water, um, <laughs> pun intended. And uh, and Stanton, you know, was I, I think he won the Oscar for that. I'm pretty yeah, sure. Yeah, he yeah, did. yeah. Um, and then he moved on, and he uh, he created Wally, which came out uh, you know half a decade later, and we'll discuss that further on the show in a minute. And I, I think it's easily his best film. Um, it's his most audacious. Um, and after Wally, which was you know, another film that wasn't, it was a little challenging, um, at least, you know, journalists were talking about how it was probably not going to do so well because it's, you know, there's not a lot of dialogue and blah, 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 blah. Of course, it was There was a perception that it was too arty. Too arty. And we'll talk about that when we get... Too smart. Yeah, too smart. And we'll talk about that when we get to the film. People are stupid. They won't go see this good movie. People in Iowa, (laughs) bring in Harvey Weinstein. We need to cut this first half hour out of this movie because nobody talks. Anyway, Wally was also a big hit, both critically and commercially. Yeah, Uh, and he won the Oscar for that as well. Um, And then this is... It's an interesting point in Pixar's um, history because... A lot of the directors and creative types at the studio kind of went on similar trajectories um, where they created an initial hit, uh, Pete Docter did Monsters, Inc., and then 
tried something a little more audacious by creating Up, which, you know, is not a... It, it's, it's, a it's a hard property to sell in a, in a soundbite. It's about an old man who sure. wants to watch about a movie about an old man. Um, and so those, those second features by the Pixar directors are the, the more audacious and, and artistically challenging. Ratatouille, Wally, and, and Up. Yeah. Um, and Brad Bird, you know, is, is slightly different since he came from, you know, animation prior to that. He directed Iron Giant for Warner Brothers and, and then made The Incredibles at, at uh, Pixar. Um, but then both uh, Stanton and Bird decided, you know what, I'm going to try to make a live-action film. Uh, they both went off and, and, and worked on stuff, and they had... Varying degrees of success with the final product. Uh, Brad Bird, who was working on something, uh, a larger project called 1906 that is still not been created because it's it's kind of a little too crazy, um, kind of made a quick and dirty movie by making the sequel to uh, Mission Impossible. He did Ghost Protocol, uh, which was a huge success in uh, holiday season of whatever year that was, 2011. I don't even know. <laughs> um, and Stanton worked on an adaptation of uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars. Which was not a success. Which was, it was the Lone Ranger of its year. Um, and you haven't seen it, right? I have not. Uh, I was really excited for it, despite all of the prognostications saying that this is a, a mess and it's not, gonna, it's not good and da 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 All these things that we've also heard from Lone Ranger. But I said, it's Andrew Stanton. He's, you know, proven himself. I'm going to give it a shot. Um, I didn't see it in the theater. I did catch up with it on Blu-ray. Um, and unfortunately, it is a mess. Um, I, it feels like it feels very much like the studio was hovering over him. Um, I don't know how much creative control he had, but the movie has like three or four openings, like introductions, um, where you think, okay, now the movie's going to get underway, and then, oh wait, no, we're going to give you another introduction, and then. It, it also has like three endings to it, um, which is really disruptive. And uh, there, do you remember there was a long uh, during the lead up to to John Carter? There was a long New Yorker profile of Andrew. Uh, there was Andrew a Stanton. very good, yeah. And it it seemed to me like he was getting he was getting into this uh, trap that that directors sometimes get into when they're adapting a book that they really like that they feel really close to is that there was too much of the movie that he didn't want to leave out. And what ends up being is just kind of a mess of just a hodgepodge of ideas from the book that don't really translate well to the screen. Um, Akira Kurosawa did this with uh, his adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Idiot. Um, and looking at, at Stanton's other, other films, so they're all original screenplays, right? Are, yep. are any of them adaptations? Nope. Do you think that would, that was? Uh, I think that's part issue? of it. I think another issue with John Carter in particular is that John Carter, you know, and this is kind of what they tried to sell it as, is that it kind of influenced everything that came after it. The books did, you know, they influenced things like Star Wars and sure. all these other things. The problem with that is that audiences don't care about influence. About influence, and so seeing a desert planet. You know, you think of Dune and you think of Star Wars because that's what you saw on, you know, film previously, even though the book predates that. Um, and and a lot of the, you know, it's an old story and it doesn't really work in this big CGI, you know, um, world that we live in now, you know, where the idea of John Carter, you know, when he's on Mars, he's able to leap, you know, vast distances, you know, because the gravity is different. Right. Like um, Superman. Like Superman. But seeing that 
as like his special power or whatever nowadays is not really that interesting it's like oh you you see that on smallville or something you see it on tv you know it's it's right. you know those things aren't that great um there is some there are some great moments to the film one of the endings one of the three endings i thought was really well done um and there's there's bits of it that do work but it really does feel like he was out of his element working on live action. So you would say that in this kind of, of sci-fi epic, there's like there's two things you need for a successful movie. You need you need a good story, and you also need a sense of wonder. Yeah, and, and there's, it's lacking the the wonder, and the story is a mess. Story is a mess. Um, it really, yeah, it's very stilted. It doesn't, which is interesting because the work he did with Pixar, um, which uh, again we will be discussing shortly is so assured and and you know Pixar famously works on their stories until they crack it. Well and, yeah, I think you know it's it's hard for me to see Andrew Stanton as like an auteur mm -hmm. because the the Pixar system is so is such a factory model. It's 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 more factory than MGM or or Warner Brothers ever was in in the 30s or 40s. It's it's such a collaborative work just in the writing of the screenplays and also in in the creation of the worlds in like the actual direction. It's really hard for a director to put their their personal stamp on a Pixar movie. I I, I don't know that. I might disagree with you on that. I I, I can I I wouldn't go as so far as saying yeah that Andrew Stanton is an auteur, but um, would you say Brad Bird is an auteur? I think he's closer than Andrew Stanton is. Like I think that I think there's more Brad Bird in in Ratatouille and The Incredibles. I think I think absolutely. Then um, I think those movies have more in common with The Iron Giant than they do with Finding Nemo and Wall-E. But I think that Finding Nemo and Wall-E have a lot in common with Ratatouille and Monsters Inc. And yeah, um, I, 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 no, I can see that. Um, and yeah, I think I think in that New Yorker profile too, they talk about. Stanton running test screenings, a lot of a lot of test screenings for John Carter, and I right. don't think Pixar does that. I think the only test screenings they really do is for staff. Right. Um, well, they have their the own brain their own you know internal test screening system right. where where they run everything through everyone else that works for the company, Pete Doctor and, and Stanton and Bird and, and Lassiter, Lassiter yeah. and so on. Yeah, um, and and John Carter feels more of like a film by committee than something that uh, Pixar, uh, Pixar released us. Um, unfortunately, due to John Carter's failure at the box office, I mean, it was a very expensive film to make. And all the blame doesn't necessarily lie with Stan, because the, the movie's okay, but Pixar, I mean, uh, excuse me, uh, Disney really fumbled the ball on uh, marketing this thing. You know, not only did they cut out the Mars part of the title, they just called it John Carter, which is the most bland title in the, in the world, except yeah. for planes which just came out this week it was a sequel to coach carter right that's right <laughs> or get carter um <laughs> yeah so you know disney really dropped the ball on that too um unfortunately uh stanton has kind of retreated to the you know safe womb that is pixar in the worst fashion possible he's currently writing and directing the sequel uh to finding nemo titled finding dory which is coming out in a couple of years and um it's eh. I, I'm really sad that this is happening. Because um, what's going on with Pixar? What's they have? They seem to have sequelitis. They do, and actually, I have a quote here from Stanton um, about that um, that I would like to read. I, this is he just came out with this earlier this week. Um, 
discussing uh, Finding Dory, and he says, There was polite inquiry from Disney about a Finding Nemo sequel. I was always no sequels, no sequels, but I had to get on board from a VP standpoint, because he's also a vice president at Pixar. Um, sequels are part of the necessity of our staying afloat, but we don't want to have to go there for these reasons. We want to go there creatively, so we said to Disney, can you give us the timeline about when we release them? Because we'd like to release something we actually want to make, and we might not come up with it uh, the year you want it. Now, that quote there, there's a few red flags in there for me. One, I mean, obviously the fact that, you know, Disney was prodding them and that kind of, you know, got the ball rolling on this. Um, the other thing is he's looking at the movie from a, a business standpoint as a vice president and yep. not as a creative, uh, you know, individual. He feels forced into it. And But to me, the worst part is he says, we have to go there to stay afloat, which to me is a it's, total lie. It's, it's counter to to what built Pixar. Like, yeah. Pixar wasn't built by Toy Story 2. Like, its, its peak is is The Incredibles, Finding Nemo, WALL-E, Ratatouille, and Up. Oh, yeah. All of which are original screenplays, none of which are sequels. Yeah, all new characters, not, not tied into anything else. And all of which were not expected to be financial successes by... Uh, Industry by, you know, studio vice presidents. Yeah. But they were all hits because they were all really good movies. They're, they're, that string, I mean, I, until a few years ago, I would have fo- I would have followed Pixar off a cliff. I mean, I, seriously, I really would have. And, and their upcoming slate of films that are um, kind of created by the original crop of directors, um, Pete Docter has a, a another film coming out called Inside Out in a couple of years where it takes place inside the mind of a, a girl and it takes place literally inside her brain. That to me gets me so much more excited than Monsters uh, University. Yeah, and you know even uh, Brave, which came out last year and was it wasn't all that successful either commercially or critically, was still a much more interesting film to me than than Cars Two. Cars or, Two, yeah, Cars or Two, or Finding Nemo Two, or Monsters University, or whatever. I'd much rather see Brave, which is actually trying to do new things, and you know maybe it doesn't hold together as well as like peak Pixar, but it's still a really good movie. Well, Brave is an interesting film because to me, Brave kind of gets at the maybe the schism that's going on at Pixar right now because the original director uh, Brenda Chapman was taken off the project um, and replaced, um, which but is... They, but they've done that before. They have done that before, but to me, it feels like with Brave, they, it well, seems... with Ratatouille, the replacement director was, was Brad, Brad Bird. Bird. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was going to be my argument, was uh, if you replace Jan Pinkava, who you know made a great short film for them, Jerry's Game and stuff, but if, if there were trouble and, and you called in Brad Bird, and Brad Bird took just the basic elements and rewrote the entire thing, I think that's different than Brave, which used a lot. I think of Brenda Chapman's original stuff, but then kind of, I, I feel like probably watered it down a little bit more instead of creating something new. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I I love Pixar um, in so many ways, and it and it kind of, you know, I take it kind of personally. I don't like I don't want to give them my money for these things. Um, I don't want to see Finding Dory um, because I love, you know, and it's not just them. You know, it's rare the sequel that I go out and pay money to see. You know, and it's even rarer that I'm actually excited about it. Like, I'll see The Avengers 2 because I like Joss Whedon. I'm not going to be as excited about it as I was about seeing Much Ado About Nothing, you know. Um, you, know you know what we're not going to see? Hmm. Spirited Away 2. No, you're not. Bad, bad, <laughs> back in the pigsty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, we're not. Studio Ghibli is uh, 
they've they've been a studio longer than Pixar, and they've proven time and again that we can make an interesting. Not, not much longer. They started like the late seventies. They start well. I think the first uh, Nasaka was. I think. I mean, the first directed by Miyazaki was. Um, Castle of Cagliostro, but I think that was another studio. Um, so I think they were like 84. That's, that's right around the time that Pixar started doing shorts. Well, yeah, but I think the fact that they were making features to that point you know, sure. is a different They've also made much fewer. Pixar has a movie every year. Yeah. Or Ghibli has one you know, every couple of years. Yeah. This year they're supposed to have two, which I'm, I'm super, super excited about. But we're kind of going off on a tangent here. Um, <laughs> anywho, Andrew Stan, I think he's... Um, he, he does a lot of things really well. Um, I agree. I don't think he's at the level of a Brad Bird. Um, and I'm actually, I'm really excited about Pete Docter because he's the one that stayed making animated films. He didn't feel the need to go off and make live action. It seems like his passion truly is animation and he doesn't have any interest in, in being um, anything else. You know, like John Lasseter has gone on to become, you know, creative officer of Disney. He's yeah. much more of a, a suit now. Sure. Um, even though he's wearing a Hawaiian shirt while he does it. Um, and Brad Bird, who has had the longest career in animation, he was a supervising uh, animator on, on, the Simpsons. on The Simpsons for several years, and um, Family Dog, and uh, obviously did the Iron Giant stuff. You know, and I think, yeah, I think Brad Bird is is, is the most autoristic of them all. Um, but, but Pete Docter has, has um, a good track record. I, I think Up is really good. I think Monsters, Inc. is... A, a, a great film for what it is. I don't think it's, you know, the bee's knees or whatever, but I'm really looking forward to Inside Out. Uh, but anyway, uh, without further ado, we should get to our discussion of Wally uh, with a clip from the film. Here's Ben Burt. Okay, that was a clip from WALL-E, Andrew Stanton's 2008 film from Pixar Animation Studios. Uh, the film is set 700 years in the future. Uh, Earth has become basically a giant trash heap, um, and humans have gone off onto a space liner um, owned and operated by, by and large, which is this basically monolithic this corporation, uh, corporation that owns everything. They own everything. They own the government. They own everything. Um, and back down on Earth, they've left uh, robots... Uh, to clean up the mess, and over the course of the 700 years, all of the robots have died out. Uh, their parts have broken, and there's except for one Wally, who uh, is a 
cute little fellow who, you know, he continues to do his day job, but he's also curious. He plays with certain things he finds. He, he keeps um, some junk that he thinks has, you know, value. Um, and he's a hopeless romantic. He, he watches Hello, Dolly uh, on a loop, basically, um, which is also a piece of junk <laughs> you know, that was left behind. Uh, but he finds some beauty in there, and his life is changed when a... Uh, a sleek new robot appears um, named Eve who is searching for vegetation uh, or any signs of life on Earth so that humans can return uh, to the planet. And Wally falls in love. And uh, Wally ultimately shows her, um, as he's showing her all the junk in his uh, home, he, that he did find a plant and she shuts down and is taken back up to the, uh, the liner, the space liner called the Axiom. And the rest of the movie basically plays out of uh, Wally and Eve trying to get the plant to the appropriate parties so that uh, the entire you know, civilization can make its way back to Earth. But there are some characters who do not want this to happen, and uh, there's tension there. So, that's my description of Wally, Sean. That was very detailed. Thank you. For the, uh, the one person in the audience who has not seen <laughs> Wally, they will be well-oriented for this discussion. I get excited. I'm sorry. So yeah, this is this is probably the most famous movie we've talked about on the show. I don't know, Two Lovers. <laughs> it's it's also very recent. So I imagine I imagine most people have seen Wally and already have an opinion of it. I I've seen it several times. And so I'm just going to start with uh with talking about the thing the things I don't like about Wally. Okay. Let's talk about Take a take a different tact sure. because, you know, I love this movie, but I'm going to talk about what I don't like about it. Sure. Near the end of the film, the autopilot has tilted the the spaceship off its axis. So all of the, the fat people with no bones have slid down the side of the ship, and they're all piling up at the bottom. And John and Mary, who are two humans who have kind of been tangential part of the story, they're voiced by uh, John Ratzenberger and Kathy Najimney, are, are falling down, and Mary sees some babies <laughs> falling, falling down after. And so she swings John... Uh, in an arc, and so they they will catch all the babies in their arms, and she says, John, get ready to have some kids. Yes. I don't like that line. <laughs> I think I think that's like a, a, a bad action movie pun. I, I think it's just terrible. Uh, you're, so you're saying you hate Wally. Uh, what, I'm saying, <laughs> what I'm saying is I hate that line, and every other thing about Wally I love. I can see that. I, I also kind of think the line uh, that Jeff Garland's captain says of uh, "I'm gonna now I'm gonna take a stand" as he stands up. It's a little hokey too, but uh, that's fine. Jeff Garland makes it work. He does make it work. Um, yes, Wally's fantastic, and I think I need to, as I as I often do on the show, I need to give a little backstory from my experience with Wally because it is kind of special to me. Um, I actually had the opportunity to see Wally at Pixar um, a few weeks. I think it was about a month before the film opened uh, worldwide. My brother worked with a woman whose husband worked at Pixar as a texture and shading uh, artist there, and he got to see Ratatouille in advance. And uh, I yelled at him and berated him for a year after that, saying, "If you get to go to see the next Pixar film, I'm coming with you." And he made it happen. I flew down, and I got to go to Pixar. I got a tour of the uh, main building, the atrium, and uh, upper levels, and saw production art for the film. And uh, and then I got to see the film in Pixar's personal uh, theater, which is an intimate little venue. Seats probably a couple hundred, maybe at most. 
um, very gorgeous thing and um, it was a very special experience for me. It was a little distracting because it was packed with friends and family and so certain moments would be kind of, you know, hooted and hollered probably because they knew who worked on that right. that section. Um, and also there were a lot of kids there, which it's a kid's movie ostensibly. Um, and in the first half hour, there was a lot of, why is Wally doing that, daddy? Or and stuff right next to me. And me being <laughs> the jerk that I am was like, shut up, kid. Um, <laughs> to myself, I didn't say it to the kid. I would have been thrown out of Pixar on my tuchus. But, um, but it, that was a very special experience for me. Um, Interestingly enough, I think actually seeing it at Pixar made my initial take on the film a little underwhelming um, because I loved Ratatouille so much. Ratatouille is my favorite movie of 2007, and I think it, it still is. I think it's better than No Country for Old Men and uh, There Will Be Blood and all I'm that. I'm not there. <laughs> and I'm not there. Um, I, think it, I think Ratatouille, then Death Proof, and then all that other stuff. But anyway... Um, I think my expectations were so high, plus I was at Pixar, that I saw Wally, and while I could tell that that first 30 minutes was the best thing the studio had ever done, and I still think it's the best thing that they've ever done, the best sustained section of a Pixar film, um, I was a little underwhelmed, and I came out of saying, that was good, uh, but I wasn't like, wow! Um, every time I see it after that, I kind of kick myself a little bit more for, for having that opinion. Um, I still don't think it's their best film, but I think it's easily, it's Stanton's best film. It's, I think it's light years above uh, Finding Nemo, which is a fine film in and of itself. Um, but to me, the audaciousness of Wally is so, it's, it's, it's stunning because it is a, you know, it's a summer animated film geared towards families, but the, the little things about it that really show the amount of detail that Pixar puts into things uh, are, are what get me. Like for me with this movie, it's not really camera work, but the the effect that they use to make it look like a, a widescreen camera with, you know, they got sunspots on the camera and they'll pan and try and focus in on something in the distance and the camera will kind of jut a little bit. Stuff like that, that you would never, you don't see in animated films because they don't, take that look to it yeah the 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 detail in the in the creation of wally is is what's most astounding by it and is what i i think makes it the the best pixar movie because their their other films are not as fully realized worlds as this um not just in in the camera work like they they famously had roger deakins come in as a cinematography consultant to kind of make it look more film-like the there's there's focus shifts and there's uh, like you say lens flares and it looks like it was actually filmed with a camera yeah even though it's all computer created yeah but it's you know it's not just in the cinematography it's also in the editing there are there are are wild cuts in and shifts in perspective like there's a um when wally first encounters eve and she you know shoots at him you they cut from from eve shooting way back in, into the distance, miles away to the point of view of the little cockroach that's Wally's friend to see the mushroom cloud in mm -hmm. the distance. That's not the a kind of cut that you would get in a Disney animated movie. Like it, But you would see it in, in a modern you know, action film. Certainly. Uh, and there's, there's other cuts like that. There's uh, uh, when Otto, the autopilot, is shocking Wally. There's a cut to uh, Otto's little minion. Yeah. 
that that, that mimics the cut in uh, Return of the Jedi yep. with the Emperor and Darth Vader. Yep, it, it, that's exactly what they're going for there. Like they, they they cut the movie like a film, not like a cartoon. Yeah, and and that's you know what makes it so rewatchable. Uh, and also not just that, but in the, you know, the creations of all of the little characters and all of the little details of, of the world, there, there are so many, you know, little robots that have, you know, personalities and little jokes and asides. And yeah, it's amazing how, and, and, you know, when this came out, there was, there was a talk of how there's, there's very little dialogue, especially in that first 30 minutes and stuff, um, which is, you know, there's, it's no, kind of, there's not a lot of dialogue, but there's a lot of action. There's, there's plot. Yeah. There's character. There's sound effects. You know, it's not a silent movie. It's not a silent movie, but Pixar does manage to yeah imbue these characters that you know mostly just say their names or say the names of somebody else with so much personality. Like Mo, the cleaning little robot. Right. That guy. I mean, he could star in his own movie because he's he's got so much personality, um, and he. Well, he Mo, goes on an arc. Mo is is thematically really important to the film. Like mm-hmm. uh, ostensibly, the film is about environmentalism. Like we make too much trash, right. you know. But that's not what the movie is about. That's not what the film's theme is. That's what the film's that's the subject of the plot. But right. that's not what the movie is really about. What the movie is really about is is uh, is the people live in this world where they just follow their directives, where they just do what they're told, and they need to overcome that. And what makes Wally unique is that he does more than just his job. He has a personality. He has interests and curiosity. And he kind of spreads that around to all of the other robots. And Mo is like the first indication of that because Mo, the robots will follow only these lines that are, that are lit up on the ground. And Mo takes a leap off of that because he wants so much to clean up after Wally (laughs) because his job as a robot is to clean things up, but he's got this conflict between wanting to clean it up and needing to follow the line. Right. And more and more people throughout the film become like infected with this free will that Wally brings along with him. Uh, Not just Mo and Eve, but also, you know, the captain and the other humans Mm -hmm. begin to, to think outside of what they're, how they've been programmed. Yes. Absolutely. And to me, that first 30 minutes that I knew was a masterpiece when I first saw it, and I still think it's the best part of the film, um, why I think that part works so well, not just the fact that the editing is fantastic, it's the, the it moves at a clip, it gives you all the information you need. I mean, from a storytelling standpoint, it's phenomenal. But also, from a, a technical as- uh, angle, to see an animated, computer animated film in particular, um, spend so much time getting garbage and dirt right. Like, you don't, you know, most computer animated films, the, the characters are very plasticky. Everything is very, you know, sleek and, and smooth and stuff. And the amount of work that Pixar put into making it feel like a, I mean, a real environment of, of grit. And, and Wally's, you know, rusted and battered up and bruised. And that to me, that's part of the reason that when it moves to the axiom, it kind of deflates a little bit. Like, the storytelling is still pretty solid. But the axiom is intentionally so, so hermetically sealed and clean and spotless and, and what have you, that it, it feels like, and in particular, the humans there are the most cartoonish elements in the film. Like, the robots sure. seem very realistic, um, and, and Earth seems very realistic. Um, and so but Pixar has yet to believably animate humans. Yeah, but I'm not saying that they necessarily... I think this is the one movie where that 
would kind is is kind of a necessity or not necessarily a necessity, but it kind of hinges on stuff. Characters like the characters in The Incredibles are stylized and it works because they're comic book characters and it makes sense for that world. Well, and they're stylized in Up, they're stylized in Brave. Yeah, they're stylized in all of them. Um, I think the problem here is is that, in, and we also see on Earth, we see uh, Fred Willard as the head of, uh, by and large, live action. Right. You know, and we see um, also a by and large commercial with, you know, live right. action the, people. The, the theory is that in their 700 years on the spaceship with, with all of their, their needs catered to them, the, the humans who began as actual humans have degenerated into CGI blobs. Yeah, and I get that. It's just there's a deflation there for me because it does... I think originally Andrew Stanton, was, it was going to be a big reveal that the, the corpulent... Uh, gelatinous blobs w- were actually humans. I think he was going to have them devolve so far that when you're on the Axiom, you didn't realize that it was Earth. It was kind of like a Planet of the Apes thing. Oh, okay. Um, and then there would be this big reveal at the end, like, oh my gosh, these gelatinous blobs are actually human beings that have just, you know, withered to this point. Sure. Which is really interesting, you know, as like... That would a, be much harder to animate, I would it, think. It would be much harder to animate, and, you know, a lot of the story would not work with that. You know, because you kind of need to know, right? Because you know, Wally collects the the detritus of detri- detritus of, uh, <laughs> of of you know human culture, right? And and you know, our, our toys, our our trinkets, and our machines, our our musicals. Yes. <laughs> um, what? Let me ask you about that, that because I, I I really like how this movie. Um, is willing to so blatantly incorporate other things. Like, it does take Hello, Dolly. Um, and I think it's the first Pixar film to use pre-existing music. Like, there's always been the Randy Newman songs and Toy Story and Bugs Life and stuff, but this uses yeah. Louis. I, I, this is my favorite Pixar score so far. <laughs> Not just, you know, Thomas Meason's or, or Newman's uh, orchestral score, but also the use of the songs from Hello, Dolly and, and the... The Le'Veon Rose with Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, Thomas Newman's score is fantastic. Um, I, you know, Pixar has kind of shifted away from Newman, uh, both Newmans actually, to be using Michael Giacchino a lot. And I think Michael Giacchino can make interesting things, but I think... I like his Ratatouille score a lot. His Ratatouille score is really phenomenal. Um, and he did the score on The Incredibles, which kind of had the 60s you know, vibe to it. And actually his, he worked on cars too. Um, and he kind of comes up with a like swing and surf rock kind of sound. That is one of the shining lights in a movie that is pretty abysmal. <laughs> so, um, I haven't seen cars too, but I, I bought the score for Wally and I've actually listened to it. Yeah. It's, it's really good. Um, I really like the, it, the opening shot of uh, of Earth, and you hear that uh, kind of arpeggio kind of thing or whatever it is that kind of brings you into the world, and it's kind of off kilter and interesting. Well, it, it opens with the the song from Melodia with uh, "Put on Your Sunday Clothes," and then it kind of fades out and becomes like this eerie sci-fi thing, right. and then the "Put on Your Sunday Clothes" comes back in, but it's sourced at Wally as he moves around in and out of the frame. The the volume you know goes up and down with kind of like a Doppler effect, which you know, is, is creating a, it's a 3d sound effect mm-hmm. in a 2d movie. Yeah. And it, it creates a much more believable world than, than something like, uh, uh, avatar in mm-hmm. 3d. Absolutely. Like I, I'm much more get a, a sense of reality out of, out of Wally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What do you think of Jeff Garland? 
I think Jeff Garland's really good here. I mean, usually stunt casting or casting someone for their personality annoys me. Um, you know, I, I really don't think that's the case. I don't think they're that Wally's like we got to get that guy to no, curb no. your enthusiasm. <laughs> that's not what I, that's not what I meant. But uh, Jeff Garland has a very distinctive voice, definitely, and he does the Jeff Garland voice. And so anybody that's seen Curb Your Enthusiasm when they hear his voice, I mean, at least for me, I think, hey, it's Jeff Garland. Well, that's one of the things that Pixar does differently than than later era Disney did is in, uh, and uh, DreamWorks mm-hmm. has followed suit is is they cast actors based on their voice mm-hmm. and the vocal qualities that they'll give to the performance as opposed to on their personality. Right. So, you know, I I think Garland is, is great at the captain and I think he, he uh, there's a, an innocence to, to Jeff Garland's exclamations mm-hmm. that really make the, the scenes of the captain learning about what life on Earth was like believable absolutely I, I totally agree with that um and he also shows up uh in toy story 3 i think as the unicorn uh, sparkles um <laughs> so he's turning into a new good luck charm for the for the studio and no i think he's great and um but if we're going to talk about voices we have to talk about ben burt because ben oh, yeah. burt's creation of wally is one of the greatest, I mean, I'm getting tingles just thinking about it right now, like seriously, um, the way that he created the voice for Wally is such a phenomenal achievement in a, in a lifetime of phenomenal achievements. Ben Burt famously got his start or kind of rose to fame on Star Wars. Um, as the sound designer. As a sound designer and he created the sounds of R2-D2 and, and um, you know, he worked on um, Raiders, I think, and, you know, anyway, he's had a storied career as a sound guy and he's just a genius. Um, but I really think that this is his greatest work is, is what he's done with Wally. Um, that first scene that we played the clip of, of the two of them, uh, Eve and Wally meeting and Wally kind of trying to enunciate and speak the name, um, is just, right. <laughs> it just brings tears to my eyes. It's, it's great. And it tells you a lot about the personalities and the difference in the kind of robots that they are. Yeah. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, why shouldn't these robots be able to speak clearly? You know, they're futuristic creations. They can fly and, and shoot, you know, nuclear explosions out of their arm. But, you know, she can't speak English. Well, she can speak pretty fine. No, she goes... Th- she has, like, a, t- a, whole, a whole, like, voice bed. Well, she has a number of languages that she speaks like a computer. Well, yeah. Well... Okay. I'm not, I'm not, compl- I'm not complaining. Okay. I'm not perfectly <laughs> okay. fine with okay. this kind of stylization. Okay. I just think it. I just think it's funny. Well, yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, I think Wally's the one that's struggling more to speak, and that's partially probably because he wasn't designed to, and partially because he's been alone for 700 years and he hasn't used that part of his operating system. Sure. Um, and for me, when I saw the trailer for this thing, which I saw a zillion times at the Metro when we still worked there, I would sneak in and watch it. Um, the trailer for this movie gave me goosebumps just for that wally that he throws that they throw in at the end. Um, it because it that to me showed you that all cylinders were running full throttle on this thing. Like they had, you know, like you said, they brought in Roger Deakins for this. Like you know, probably the greatest cinematographer or one of the greatest at least cinematographers of the last you know uh, several decades. You know, they brought in Ben Burt. You know, they went all freaking out with this thing and it's i think it's pixar's greatest achievement for me it's it's their most complete movie it's the the best expression of everything that pixar does 
Okay. Does, does great. Uh, last thing I want to talk about is is the last thing we see in the film, which is is the end credits. And, mm-hmm. and Pixar famously has you know entertaining end credits, but the ones the ones for Wally are the best. Where you, you we start with. Um, uh, as the film has ended, the humans have returned back on Earth and they're going to restart civilization. So then the credits start rolling, and what we see in a variety of different artistic styles are just kind of the history of the recreation of, of human civilization. And it progresses from like Egyptian hieroglyphics to, to Greek-styled art to a Roman mosaic through you know the Renaissance and Impressionists and, and Van Gogh. And it's just, it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's... it's you know, a little, it's like three minutes long, but it's a whole history of human art. And human history. <laughs> and yeah. human history yeah. in a credit sequence. Yeah. And that's, you know, just kind of throwing something like that away in a credit sequence is something that that filmmakers and, and studios do when they're at their peak. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's you know, season four Simpsons level stuff where yeah. they just have so many ideas and there's just so much uh, brewing out there that they can just toss stuff off and throw it away. Yeah. That, that, that reminds me, I just rewatched the episode of Community, uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, mm-hmm. which to me might be the peak of Community. And they do the same thing where every element to that episode of that show they threw like like the credit sequence is, is a special credit sequence just for that episode where it's all Dungeons right. and Dragons themes and stuff like that. And you're right, it, it every every piece of this movie is 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 phenomenal. It's just it's it's a masterpiece. It really... it's, it's the Casablanca of animated films. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have Claude Rains in it though, which is a a dumb. But it's got shame. John Ratzenberger, who is really is he not the Claude Rains of our time? <laughs> He just might well, very well be. Um, so that's our discussion of Wally. Um, we will now transition back into some Kraftwerk with uh, a song called "The Robots." The good old lads in Kraftwerk. <laughs> uh, that's our show for this week. Uh, next week, we will be back. We're talking, uh, thanks to Mike's brother, we're going to talk about Catherine Bigelow's Point Break. Big and shout out to Christopher. 
we're pairing that with Joseph H. Lewis's Gun Crazy, a.k.a. Deadly is the Female. I'm really excited about next week. I, I, I've been meaning to see Gun Crazy for a long time. If you're in the Seattle area this week, you need to go to the Grand Illusion and check out the Ray Harryhausen tribute they're doing. Um, they're playing uh, one of the Sinbad movies. They got like a special double feature of, of mystery Harryhausens. But the one I recommend is Jason and the Argonauts, which is, is my favorite of the, uh, the Harryhausen films. It's got the, uh, the famous uh, fight sequence with uh, Jason fighting uh, animated skeletons. Yep. Which was aped in uh, Army of Darkness. Sam Raimi's film. Yeah, it's it's a terrific film. Uh, the you can't go wrong with Ray Harryhausen. It's it's so much more interesting to me the kind of stop motion practical effects he did than your random you know CGI monster of the week movie. Oh, absolutely. Um, you and I talked about that on Letterboxd when I watched uh, Tremors or whatever. When we were talking about the dearth of good movie monsters in the yeah. last twenty years or whatever. And yeah, Harryhausen. We'll tie in with Pixar. You know, in Monsters Inc., uh, the sushi place is named Harryhausen's. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, if you're, if you're not in Seattle and you're not going to see the Harryhausen, but if you're in LA, um, or surrounding areas, uh, the new Beverly is doing a month long series of double features, uh, curated by Edgar Wright, um, tying in with his upcoming release of the world's end, uh, the third part of, uh, the blood and Cornetto trilogy. Um, and he's doing two films uh, a week. I think that, uh, had an impact on, I guess, this upcoming film. Uh, the one I'm most excited about is he's doing um, a double feature of American Graffiti uh, from George Lucas and Richard Linklater's Days and Confused, uh, August 11th and 12th at the New Beverly. Uh, but there are other ones I think are going to be uh, Westworld and The Terminator and a whole bunch of other great stuff. So, Days and Confused is a great movie. I like American Graffiti a lot. I mean, you know. I like American Graffiti, but Days and Confused is a great movie. Yeah, no. Dazed and Confused is a great movie. It's better than American Graffiti. I really like it. Um, it's Richard Linklater's best movie. Yes. I. Yes. Yes, it is. Next week, also, we will be talking about uh, Catherine Bigelow. will be our person of the week. And we'll also be picking our Cinema Central um, adrenaline films. Films that get you, you know, white-knuckled and uh, edge of your seat. Ready to, to run out and, and jump out of an airplane or... Drink some Mountain Dew. Or... <laughs> you know, go to a bank with Keanu Reeves. That's right. <laughs> That's always an exhilarating time. Um, so, in uh, the meantime, you can uh, find us on our website, the George Sanders Show You can follow us on Twitter at Geo Sanders Show, or you can send us an email, the George Sanders Show or at Gmail Yes, you can. And I guess that's it for this week. Take it away, George. Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say, I love you. On that you can rely No matter what the view 
Oh. Uh-huh. 